Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, I'm Ann W. Smith, co-chair for the Commonwealth Club's member-led arts forum, and I'm pleased to welcome Commonwealth Club members and everyone else to our program today. Normally, we'd be doing this in, our, in person at our beautiful building on the Embarcadero in San Francisco, but we're doing it today like we have many programs during the past two years, virtually. The Arts Forum holds special programming related to the arts in the Bay Area and beyond throughout the year. Coming up September 20 is a program called Who is Cleopatra? An in-person panel of women artists from San Francisco Opera discuss women's issues in relation to the ancient powerhouse leader, the Queen of Egypt. Today, (laughs) the Arts Forum is honored to present this special program and welcome back Robert Rosenbaum, who has delighted Commonwealth Club, excuse me, Commonwealth Club audiences several times in recent years. Bob Rosenbaum is an American Zen teacher with lay entrustment in Soto Zen from Sojo Mel Weitzman and Denkai in Ordinary Mind Zen from Karen Terzano. He's a founding member of the Lay Zen Teachers Association, and he started Meadow Mind Sangha in Arnold and Vallecito, California. He's currently uh, running an Ordinary Mind Center in Sacramento, where it's 114 or something. Anyway. 111 today. 111 degrees. Uh-oh. He is a senior teacher of Dayan Qigong, or Wild Goose Qigong, in the lineage of Yang Meijin, authorized by Master Wei Liu of the Wenwu School. He worked for 30 years as a neuropsychologist, psychotherapist, and behavioral medicine specialist until retiring about 10 years ago to devote all his time to Zen and Qigong. Bob has authored numerous journal articles and book chapters, as well as the books Zen and the Art of Psychotherapy, Walking the Way, 83 Zen Encounters with the Tao Te Ching, and What's Wrong with Mindfulness and What Isn't, Zen Perspectives About Now, and then Now About That is not your mind, exclamation point. These are Zen reflections on the Surangama Sutra, and um, Bob Rosenbaum explores that question by inviting the forum participants to experience the vast, ungraspable mind that can never be broken, taking you on this magical journey explored through the Buddhism's Surangama, sorry, Surangama Sutra, through the lenses of contemporary neuroscience, perceptual psychology, and the Zen practice of making our lives our art. So like the arts world, the Surangama Sutra is a springboard 
for exploring sensory experiences, sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, and the Buddha's sixth sense of mind or cognition. I'm sure you're going to enjoy his witty, authentic, and refreshing contemporary insights from neuroscience and psychology and learn something of the sutra's profound teachings from his decades of teaching experience. Among arts-related insights shared is an appreciation for the musics of the mind to intersect with ancient perennial Buddhist wisdom and everyday human yearning. So that's that. Uh, I'll turn the mic over to welcome back Rob, Bob Rosenbaum to the Commonwealth Club of California. Over to you, Bob. Thank you so much, Anne. Um, you said that's that, but it's just this. <laughs> uh, kind of a zenny joke. Um, I think I'll go right into the presentation so that we have enough time at the end for questions and uh, discussion between you and I. Um, I understand people can ask questions in the chat and you relay them later on. So let me share my screen. Okay. And if I put it like this, I believe everything looks okay there. So that's the book. Okay. Nothing's hidden, but there's an infinite field we cannot see. That's how I like to start um, the book. Horizons stretch ahead, behind, below, above, within our range of vision, though. Everything we see is refracted, not just through the corneas and vitreous humors of our eyes, but they're also bent by the lenses of our minds. So when you and I see a flower, we see it something like this. But when birds and bees and small animals uh, see a flower, they see it something like this because they have ultraviolet receptors. Uh, We can't perceive ultraviolet light, but the ultraviolet light gives bees and and other animals uh, a kind of bullseye of where to go on the flower. And we might think, oh, well, we see more than they do, but they see other than we do. And in fact, some animals have the same three Opsins, responsive to three different wavelengths of light like we do, plus a fourth, the ultraviolet light. There are some humans who have the three usual opsins plus a fourth at a higher frequency. And what might they see? How can we even imagine it? There's so much that we don't see at this very moment you're not seeing more than you're seeing. So I got into the Surangama Sutra because it addresses this issue. It says, well, when I don't see, why don't you see my not seeing? If you see my not seeing, 
Well, obviously, that's not the characteristic of not seeing because you're seeing it. But if you don't see my not seeing, it's naturally not a thing. How could it not be you? So this is a Zen koan, which appears in the Book of Serenity. And you might look at it and, like many koans, you sort of go, huh? Well, something kind of makes sense. No, it doesn't. Where do we go from here? I mean, we're such visually oriented creatures. We thought seeing was believing until we learned how to Photoshop things like that. And now these days, if I look at my face and I say, oh, I'm not attractive enough, I can Photoshop it and make it much more attractive if that's the kind of thing you're into. Well, the Surangama Sutra is a little unusual uh, amongst Buddhist sutras in that it starts it starts with the story of near fatal attraction to an illusion. So at the start of the sutra, Ananda, the Buddha's disciple, is going around on his begging rounds, and he goes to a brothel thinking they might want to contribute. And a beautiful woman, the Matanga woman, embraces him and seduces him and strokes him. And Ananda's about to give in. And, and, and have sex and break his vows when the Buddha, by his uh, miraculous powers, uh, is, becomes aware of it. Now, this story of uh, religious people being seduced happens in, in, in all religions. It has been known to happen these days as well. But, for example, in Christianity, this is Velasquez's temptation of St. Thomas Aquinas, And in Christianity, of course, an angel comes down to help him resist temptation. Well, in uh, the Surangama Sutra, the Buddha manifests a miraculous mantra, the Surangama mantra. And uh, he manifests that and sends Manjushri to rescue both Ananda and the uh, Matanga woman who've been ensorcelled by a sexual demon um, and he brings them to the grove and Ananda is humiliated and upset and he goes oh my gosh oh I'm so sorry I'm so sorry I feel so badly and the Buddha says look let's let's not worry about saying guilt you're you're guilty or, or or apologizing let's get to the root of the matter what motivated you to seek enlightenment and Ananda says I was dazzled by the Buddha's radiant body sparkling with the 32 hallmarks of enlightenment. And Buddha says, well, what was it that saw those hallmarks? Who was it took delight in them? And Ananda replies, I delighted in them and loved them with my mind and eyes. So the Buddha says, it is the fault of your mind and eyes that you are bound to the circle of birth and death. Well, that's not quite what we expected. Um, He goes on to say, someone who does not know where his mind and eyes are will not be able to overcome the stress of engagement with perceived objects. Anne was mentioning uh, the arts and the arts might start from perceived objects, 
but they have to go to the objects that have never been seen that are not even objects, that are inspirations. So the Buddha asks Ananda, I'm now asking you precisely where are your mind and eyes? Well, that seems to be an invitation to be mindful. Mindfulness is is big these days, and mindfulness is, is good. But if you think about it, there's mindful, and there's mind, and there's eyes. And how do they interact with each other? Well, let's try a little experiment. So I don't know how well this will work on Zoom, but I put up these three candles And if you're looking at the screen right now, uh, I'd like you to focus on just the candle in the center and really look at the the candle and focus in on it and and try and make it the only thing you see so it's sharp and clear. And then still keeping your eyes open, let your eyes relax a little bit, soften so that your field of vision widens. And you can see maybe the other two candles a bit. And they're a little fuzzier, but the center one's a little fuzzier too. And maybe you can see beyond the screen and the wall and the ceiling and the floor. And notice what that's like. And then while you're doing that, notice what your belly button feels like. And just visualize your belly button where it is. And then go back to that central candle and just that and just the flame. And it's very sharp and it's very clear and concentrate, concentrate, and then soften, soften, soften. And notice when the eyes are soft, does the mind go soft? In Qigong, we say, we sometimes say eyes open, seeing nothing. Eyes open, looking far. Eyes open, looking within. All the same thing, basically. So eyes and mind seem to be related. I hope you won't mind my saying that everyone talks about mind, but nobody really knows what they're talking about. We have all kinds of language of mind. Mind your P's and Q's. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. I can't make up my mind. Will you mind the children? He's out of his mind What's all this mind that people are talking about? Well, there's all kinds of books about it. Go into any bookstore, you'll see mind over mood. You'll see mind over medicine. Uh, The power of mind. Finding freedom in every challenge. And of course, the mind diet. There will be uh, books like Take Back Your Mind. Uh, You Are Not Your Mind. And of course, many wonderful books on mindfulness. Uh, This book by Joseph Goldstein is is quite wonderful. But once you have mindfulness, well, then you have to have all the books about it. Uh, An eight-week plan for finding peace. Uh, Mindfulness for self-compassion. Mindfulness for trauma. Mindfulness for ADHD as a prescription. I've worked with a lot of uh, adults with ADHD. I don't think meditation is the first way to go with it. Um, You can try it. Uh, We've got all the practical books for beginners, practicing mindfulness for adults, 
We've got the simplifying books, Mindfulness in Plain English, Mindfulness Without the Bells and Beads. And of course, you can't have mindfulness without a bear named Pooh. <laughs> uh, we've got games. Oh, and of course, uh, how can I forget? Mindfulness for Dummies, cards, games, coloring books, journals. As long as we're publishing all these books, we might as well make uh, a workbook for kids, a workbook for teens. Mindfulness for teens, 10 minutes a day, or maybe even five minutes a day. Or the grand prize winner, one minute mindfulness. <laughs> What's that mind everyone's talking about? Well, the Buddha says, Ananda, what are the two fundamentals? First is the mind that's the basis of death and rebirth. And this mind is dependent on perceived objects. And it's this mind that you and all beings make use of and that each of you consider to be your own nature. That's our, uh, I call it in the book, I mind. Of course, it's devoted to getting things my way, seeing things my way, making discriminations, avoiding disasters. But Buddhist teachers have said this mind, which is able to make everything its object, this, these varieties of mind, and there's many kinds of this kind of mind, these varieties of mind are not the teaching of Buddhas and ancestors. So the Buddha says, there's a second fundamental, full awakening, the original understanding, the real nature of consciousness, all conditioned phenomena arise from it, yet it's amongst those phenomena that we lose track of it, even though it's active in us all day long. Uh, in the book, I call this Om Mind. Om, big mind, it's sometimes called in, in Zen, non-discriminating mind. So a Zen teacher says, there's a subtle consciousness unrelated to being and non-being, keenly aware but it's apart from passionate thought and discrimination. And this mind, not that mind, this mind makes one raise one's eyebrows and blink. This mind makes one walk, stand, sit and lie down, be confused, get into trouble, die here, be born there, eat when hungry, sleep when tired. Well, this isn't obvious, so the Buddha is going to spend some time with Ananda and try and explain. He says, Ananda, I know you want to calm the mind. You want to be free of suffering, free of death and rebirth. So I'm going to ask you again. And he holds up his arm and he bends his five fingers into a fist and he sends forth light. And he asks Ananda, did you see something? And Ananda says, I did. And Buddha says, what did you see? I saw the thus come one, another name for Buddha, raise his arm, bend his fingers into a fist that sends forth light, dazzling my mind, it eyes. And the Buddha says, when you saw my fist emit light, what did you see it with? And Ananda says, oh, I and everyone saw it with my eyes. And Buddha says, your eyes can see my fist, but what do you take to be your mind that was dazzled by it? 
And Ananda says, well, you know, you've been asking me about where my mind is and what my mind is. And my mind is what I've been using to determine where it might be. My mind is that which has the capability, capability of making such determinations. It's my mind, you know, makes distinctions. And the Buddha says, Ananda, that is not your mind. Hence the title of the book. Well, Ananda is startled. He says, if that's not my mind, what is it? And the Buddha says, it's merely your mental processes. And these assign false and illusory attributes to the world of perceived objects. And this deludes you about your true nature. And it causes you to suffer. So uh, the next section of the sutra goes into uh, visual processing as an example of how misleading our uh, visual senses. And there's many visual illusions you might have seen. This one, where if we were in person, I'd say to you, uh, how many of you are seeing the train coming towards you? And about half of you would raise your hands. How many of you are seeing the train going away from you? And about half of you would raise your hands. And probably if you look at this and you kind of move your head around a little bit, you'll be able to see, oh, wait, it's coming towards me. No, it's going away from me. No, it's coming. Well, what is it doing really? Really, that's a tricky question. Well, but the mind is the eyes and the brain, right? I mean, a Gregory Bateson was fond of saying, well, a blind person who's walking with a cane, is that cane part of their body or not? Uh, how about when, if you wear glasses or contacts, when you take your glasses on and off, are you taking part of your body on and off? When you're reading a book and you see the words, are you seeing with your mind or with your eyes? And if you're imagining something, a square, a triangle, uh, a circle, oh, where is that happening? And most people would say it's in the brain, but it's not. Um, the visual impression that we get on our retina is actually upside down. And so it comes into the brain and the brain does various things and the brain turns it right side up. But there were some Swiss studies about 80 years ago or so where they had people wear goggles uh, 24 hours a day after a, for two, three weeks. And initially you can imagine they bumped into everything. They had troubles. At a certain point, they learned to compensate, and the world looked upside. Uh, the world looked right side up. Okay, well, you can learn. But what's really interesting to me is when they took the goggles off, the world looked upside down <laughs> for a while. Then it reverted. So, which is the real world, right side up or upside down? Um, your eyes won't tell you, your brain won't tell you. If I were to open your skull and look in the gray matter, I'm not going to see a picture anywhere. There's no picture in your brain. And in fact, modern uh, theories of uh, perceptual psychology are leaning towards, we don't represent objects in the brain. We learn how to interact with objects. And so um, our perceptions are 
body action events. Anyway, the brain is not the mind. And although you've got all these, you'll see all these books on mind mastery by rewiring your brain. Um, and we see books like The Mind and the Brain and The Power of Mental Force. Um, well, you can use all the mental force you'd like, but uh, if you have to unlock a door and you don't have the key, staring at it and thinking about it may not get you very far. I mean, there's all these books, train your mind, change your brain, change your brain, change your life. Train your brain, change your mind, and transform your life. The arts with the brain in mind, leading with the brain in mind, how to change your mind. The brain is not the mind. Uh, all you have to do is ask this woman, uh, Helen Santoro, who had an article in the New York Times just a few days ago titled The Curious Hole in My Head. Now, to the right, I've, I've, I've got a picture of a, basically a normal-looking brain, uh, an MRI scan. But Helen Santoro was born without a temporal lobe, so her MRI looks like this. Missing a lot of brain. And cognitively, she's completely normal. She's graduated college. She's actually a graduate student in neuroscience. This is not so uncommon. Pediatric neuropsychologists often can reassure parents when people are born with uh, missing parts of the brain or brain injury. Something else happens, and the mind is bigger than the brain. And for that matter, neurons aren't the nervous system glial cells, the fluids in your brain, the glucose, the sugar in your brain, uh, the, the various neurotransmitters, which incidentally don't hit localized points, but get diffused all over the place. Um, they all affect things. The microbiome, you probably know, the bacteria in your gut change the way you feel and think. So does the vagus nerve to which people say, well, well, but if you wasn't there that experiment where they stimulated a single neuron and uh, the person saw Jennifer Aniston's face? It's the Jennifer Aniston neuron. So, yep, yeah, there was that test. Uh, but then they stimulated that neuron again. And the person had a completely different face that they saw and they stimulated it again and they had a completely different experience. And then you can stimulate a different neuron and you'll see Jennifer Aniston. Um, basically, there's no single unique neural signature for anything. There's various combinations of neurons at play. The brain doesn't focus function by these little bits and pieces, despite what you might read in the media. Uh, we're seeing more and more that the brain functions by networks, not isolated locations. So the next time you see a... Uh, a news article saying we found the place in the brain, which does such just think of this slide. It's kind of complicated. <laughs> we haven't figured it out. We probably never will. So in terms of networks, um, if you look at the default mode network, when the brain's not doing much of anything, you can see all different parts of the brain light up doing different things. If you look at the salience network, when the brain is keying into something, trying to accomplish something, all different parts of the brain light up. And there's different ways of modeling and mapping these networks. And there's even um, 
it's getting clear that the there are overlapping networks, the multimodal sensory network. So for example, when we're listening to someone speak, the visual information we get from their lips is processed in the auditory cortex. Uh, incidentally, that's one of the reasons why Zoom fatigue sets in. The visual information and the auditory information don't sync quite right via Zoom. Uh, when blind people echolocate, to which you might go, wait, blind people can echolocate? Uh, yeah, they can, as long as their parents don't stop them from doing it. Uh, it's common for people who are born blind at a certain age to start making clicking sounds. And based on the clicking sounds, they can tell where objects are, whether they're hard or soft, big or small. Um, but the auditory information that they get is processed by their visual cortex. And their ability to do this is quite remarkable. So various combinations of neurons are at play in ways we don't usually think about. It certainly holds true for sensory processes, physical actions, for all mental events like feelings. Um, feelings are not fixed. They're also not fixable. They're the climate and the weather of our life. So most people think, oh, yeah, feelings. There's like six or seven basic feelings, seeking, anger, fear, lust, grief, and they're in our brains. You can kind of see them in the, in the little circles in, in the lizard brain. And we have to train our rational brain to take care of them. And they're all very hardwired. Well, there's all kinds of data for this. So we know that certain brain areas are involved in anger, certain brain areas are involved in fear, so forth and so on. But I just took a little time to show you all the overlap. I mean, the hypothalamus is involved in four different areas. The amygdala you see in three, actually more than that. Uh, the anterior cingulate in care, nurturance, and grief and panic. The neurotransmitters and neuromodulators are all over the place. It's messy. It's not so easy to say this is what a person is feeling. So this old model of how feelings work is tending to be replaced these days by saying, actually, we don't have emotions in us. We create them. We have a... a general sense of what our body's feeling like, what our thoughts are like, uh, what our energy is like. And um, then we, we start to interpret them. And because it's hard, most people, if you say, well, how are you feeling today? What are you feeling? People say, well, I don't know, not so bad. It's very culture specific, specific. It's a whole brain process. And it's not categorical. It's not seven emotions. It's dimensional. Many different events can lead to a similar emotion, and the same brain path can lead to different emotions. So instead of this old model, we're seeing that there's a dimension of arousal distributed through the brain, uh, cortical and subcortical, and a valence distributed through the brain, cortical and subcortical, 
And that's all you need to get a whole range of emotion, a spectrum of emotions. And then if you add in intensity, you can see there's millions of emotions, just like there are millions of colors. Well, so our eyes don't tell us what's real. Our feelings don't tell us this is exactly what's going on. How about our sense of touch? Well, that tells us what's real. Well, in Qigong, there's a movement where you reach out and your arm is supposed to be parallel to the ground. And my students, they reach out and often their arms are up a little or they're down a little. And I said to them, no, no, parallel to the ground. And they say, my arm's parallel to the ground. And I say, look in the mirror. And they look and they go, oh my gosh, our proprioception is not so accurate. We often don't know where our body is and we have mistaken ideas of what our body is like. Or to take another example, if you take a warm object, not hot, just mildly warm, and you take a cool object and then you place your hand on it, you're not going to feel a little warm, a little cool. It's going to feel so burning hot that it'll be like touching a hot stove and you'll flip your hand away. There, I won't go into the neurology of that. But the point is that describing temperature as hot, medium, or cold doesn't really capture what it's like to be at 16,000 feet on a glacier under a cloudless sky. So this is my friend Robin Boosted, and we were on a glacier in the Himalayas, and the temperature was a pleasant 70 degrees Fahrenheit, but the sun was burning our skin. The wind blowing from the ice felt freezing. Uh, the air is thin, so you don't hold in your, your heat, so your body leaches heat. And meanwhile, you're sweating because your exertion warms you. So an average temperature, temperature doesn't convey how we're hot and cold and neither hot nor cold nor in between. And the problem with I mind, distinction mind, is it wants to be hot or cold or in between. It doesn't like this. Well, but a lot of different things are going on at once, even if they seem contradictory. Well, maybe that's true for weird things like glaciers and Himalayas, but pain is pain and pleasure is pleasure. Uh, not really. Uh, this is a T-shirt some amputees like to wear uh, to kind of make fun of the fact that they've lost their arm. The fact is that missing arm very often hurts like mad. Even though it's not that there, phantom limb pain can be excruciating, very difficult to treat in a limb that's not there. See, our experiences don't necessarily fit neatly into physical sensation versus psychological feeling. I like to say to my clients, pain is a sensational feeling. And it has very specific applications to say, well, where is your pain can be misleading because the C fibers, for example, don't give you much localization information. Uh, they're common in the viscera, they're common in chronic pain. And so the pain can float around in your body and the person goes to the doctor and they say, so where's your pain? They say, well, it's here. Well, last time you told me it was over there. Well, last time it was, they go, oh, it's all in your head. 
Well, it's not all in your head. There are reasons for this. They say, well, give it, tell me what it is on a 10-point scale. Well, there's all these different kinds of pain. And if something is flickering madly, but uh, not too hot, where do you put it on the scale? So the thing is, pain varies. And all of our experiences continuously changing. If you look at the little orange dot, it's like pain. It throbs, it gets bigger, it gets smaller, bigger, smaller, except that's not what's happening. If I put a little box around the orange dots, you'll see it's staying the same size. And that's because all of our experience is contextual. Or we say, well, it's contextual, but Things happen. Things happen to us, but we don't retrieve our memories. We recreate them each time. We don't pull off a videotape and replay it. It's more like an improv example. And we've got all kinds of memory biases. I won't go into them all here, but because of these, people can, in good faith, misidentify as eyewitness testimony. You can pretty easily induce false confessions. There are false memory syndromes. I know someone who has a clear memory of visiting his uh, mother in the hospital when he was six years old. However, his older sister has said, um, they didn't let kids visit their parents in the hospital. I know that that didn't happen, but we're very sure about our memories or at least our thoughts. I mean, okay, our, our memories aren't terribly uh, reliable, but we can use our rational thought to, to get to what's really real. And you might remember how Benjamin Franklin said, oh, it's so convenient to be a reasonable creature since we can find or make a reason for everything. As in this example, where... Groucho is the uh, ruler of Fredonia, and Mrs. Teasdale says to him, oh, the war is coming. Uh, I've, I've talked to the ambassador from the other country. Can't you please do something to avoid war? Uh, hold out the hand of friendship. Mrs. Teasdale, you did a noble deed. I'd be unworthy of the high trust that's been placed in me if I didn't do everything within my power to keep our beloved Fredonia at peace with the world. I'd be only too happy to meet Ambassador Trentino and offer him on behalf of my country the right hand of good fellowship. And I feel sure that he will accept this gesture in the spirit in which it is offered. But suppose he doesn't. A fine thing that'll be. I hold out my hand and he refuses to accept it. That'll add a lot to my prestige, won't it? Me, the head of a country snubbed by a foreign ambassador. Who does he think he is that he can come here and make a sap out of me in front of all my people? Think of it. I hold out my hand and that hyena refuses to accept it. Why, the cheap, ball-flushing swine, he'll never get away with it, I tell you. He'll never get away with it. So, you refuse to shake hands with me, eh? Mrs. Caesar, this is the last straw. There's no turning back now. This means war. Well, our thoughts can be very convincing. They're what cause war. But thoughts are objects of mind, not mind itself. The Buddha says they're like elaborate mirages that appear in space. They have no real existence of their own. 
fundamentally awareness and all its conditioned objects. In other words, everything you see, think, every object you touch, every feeling you have is the pure, wondrously understanding, enlightened mind itself. This is the mind-only school of Buddhism, which says walls, tiles, and pebbles are mine. The mind has thinking, sensing, mindfulness, and realization, and it's free of thinking, sensing, mindfulness, and realization. Dreams and fantasies, flowers in space are the mind. Spring flowers, the autumn moon are the mind. Each moment is the mind, yet it can never be broken. Now that's the key. We want to touch the mind that can never be broken. I mind, oh mind, that's not your mind. This very mind is us. To which you might be thinking, I don't understand. And in fact, Buddhist disciples say, I look here and there, I'm going about in circles. I don't understand. I find nothing that's fundamentally my mind or my mind's objects. Seems to be mere speculation. So Buddha says, well, you're sincere, but you don't quite trust the teaching. So I'll have to make use of another everyday situation to dispel your doubts. So he has somebody ring the bell. And the bell rings and he says, you hear the bell? I was going to ring the bell, but Zoom won't let me do it. It sounds weird. He says, do you... The bell's ringing. He says to everyone, you hear the bell? And people go, yes. The bell fades away. Now do you hear the bell? Everyone goes, no. Buddha says, let's try it again. Ding. You hear the bell? Now do you hear the bell? Everyone says no. It happens again. And at the end, Buddha says, why have you given such muddled answers? People say, what do you mean? You rang the bell. We heard it. We said we heard it. It stopped ringing. We said we didn't hear it. To which the Buddha says, you didn't distinguish between hearing and sound. You thought you heard the bell when it was ringing and didn't hear it when it wasn't. Then how did you know the sound had ceased? You had to be able to hear the sound's absence. Remember seeing, not seeing? Your true unconditioned hearing, true mind includes both sound and silence and is more fundamental than either sound or silence. I won't go through this, but throughout our day, we rely on hearing what is unsounded. And every place and being is always sounding itself. Are you still my guy? I don't understand. And... One of the disciples says, I might as well be a deaf man trying to hear a mosquito from a distance of more than 100 paces. Couldn't even see the mosquito, let alone hear it. I mean, if everything, everything we sense, everything we touch, everything we feel are the mind. Well, how are there mountains, rivers and everything else on earth? To which Buddha says, ah, you think you have to understand. But if you think understanding has to be added 
to your basic true mind, you're falsifying true mind. And enlightenment, a true mind to which an understanding is added, cannot be a true enlightenment because it would be incomplete. And true mind has to be complete. But then he goes on and says, but an enlightenment that lacks understanding also cannot be the true intrinsic enlightenment because then it would have some quality that defines it. Once the category of something understood is mistakenly established in the mind, the category that which understands is mistakenly established as well, and we separate ourselves from our experience. We're caught in a self-centered dream where everyone dreams what they are, but nobody understands it. Todos sueñan lo que son, aunque nadie lo entiende. If you understand yourself fully, if not, how can you understand anyone else or anything? So we think, I understand, or I don't understand, or I kind of understand, or I'll never understand, or if I keep at it someday, I'll understand. Basically, we're caught between is and is not to which the Buddha says, these are nothing but delusion. In the midst of delusion, one cannot avoid thinking that is and that is not. Only from within the true mind can one escape the error of trying to point to is and is not. No thing exists. Everything's an illusion, but it doesn't mean it's unreal. Well, you can see the white triangle, right? Pretty easy to see the white triangle, except, of course, it's not there. And if we jiggle this and jiggle that and jiggle a few other things, the white triangle is gone, but it was never there. You see, Buddhism functions by a different kind of logic called the tetralemma. To appreciate any experience, we have to go with A, not A, both A and not A, neither A nor not A, I understand. Well, actually, I don't understand. Well, actually, I do understand, and I don't understand. Actually, no, I, I don't understand. It's neither understanding nor un not understanding. Is, is not, is, is the same as isn't, is and isn't, neither of them. This has specific consequences. We think... When someone dies, oh, I should be sad. Oh, but maybe I'm happy that they're out of their suffering. Maybe I'm both sad and happy. Oh, maybe I'm neither sad nor happy. This is the way our life is. So the tetralemma says there's a triangle to the left. There's no triangle to the left. There is and there is not a triangle to the left. There neither is nor there isn't a triangle to the left. Well, that's the first half of the Surangama Sutra. I don't have uh, the opportunity here to go through the second half, but it is practical, as practical as the lotus blooming through the mud and the mud blooming through the lotus. So what do we do? The rest of the book is about how to undo the knots in our minds, how to turn around the outflows. Here's a verse from the Tao Te Ching. Everyone's certain they see things quite clearly. I still wander in darkness 
with the waves in the waters, with the winds playing ceaseless on oceans so deep. Countless things co-arising, see them turn and return, return to their roots, at their roots to be still, in stillness, recover, revive, and endure. So the sutra goes on, 25 sages tell how they came to true understanding. And the last sage says, I listened not for sound, but for the basis, the enlightened basis of sound. And I heard the cries of the world and discovered compassion is not a feeling we create, an emotion that comes and goes. It's our basis. The time of compassion is ever here at this very point. There are instructions for establishing a place for awakening, instructions for right living, precepts. The Buddha says, one who enters samadhi while practicing meditation in stillness, but who doesn't refrain from making false claims, but who still lies, is like someone who molds a piece of excrement into the shape of a piece of sandalwood incense in the hope it'll then be fragrant. And there's other precepts. And at a certain point, he goes around, come, the Buddhist warns us, and he says, okay, so you get to a certain point and you think, I'm a sage. And then demons may arise within you. And you have all these miraculous powers. You can pull intestinal worms out of your body without harming yourself or the worms. But you've not become a sage. If you think you're a sage, all kinds of bad things will happen. He goes into that. Key point is don't think you're a sage or you'll wind up like this. That's what comes of attaining samadhi too early in life. So ultimately, we wind the book up by reaching. We learn we can only be fully engaged by letting go of ourselves, reaching to each other, for each other. That reaching is realization. In our incompleteness and delusion, we keep reaching for that which lies beyond, but it's always right at hand. Nothing's hidden, though there's an infinite field we cannot see. It's practice is a matter of encountering and meeting everything with our utmost sincerity, a trusting heart. Our true nature reaching for itself is to practice with heart, beyond heart, even with half a heart. So I think I'll end by mentioning the sutras about love, not the ensorcelled demonic love from the beginning, but about bowing to each other with reverence and joy. I thought I'd end with this poem from some years back that I wrote. How wonderful there's no thing to be grasped, despite this self that striving to let go clutches firmer folding the laundry carefully, making such straight lines I double back upon myself, a wave watching waves create a beach of footsteps, salt, and stars. 
Each strand of seaweed can only be itself. One word in conversations between tides and land. Your wind becomes the ocean disappearing into sand. So if I can figure out how to stop sharing now, there we go. And my goodness, that's a, too much time, but I hope we know that's fine. Um, uh, <clears throat> you really took us along a, a, a trip there. <laughs> the roller coaster. Yeah, well, it is. And I'm thinking about, um, you know how uh, in theater it's this suspension of disbelief, and um, we see we see the actor taking on what it is that the playwright or the director has encouraged them or directed them to do, and is the actor to believe that? Are we to believe the actor? We to do believe who told the actor to do that, you know. Well, the suspension of disbelief is so fundamental to, I think, to the arts, to seeing, not seeing, hearing, not hearing. Yes, yes. But in order to to suspend disbelief, you have to stop believing that there's a person up there who's an actor. You have to stop believing that this is just a stage. My teacher used to say, uh, we shouldn't believe anything, but we should have great faith in everything we encounter. <laughs> I can't translate that. Oh, let's see. <laughs> <clears throat> so, uh, I know, I know, I know. There's this story you told me about Peter Brook that that you know that illustrates the the great theater director who took us on many journeys in his work. And um, how uh, how is the audience to be drawn in? I'm seeing what I'm seeing in front of me. Oh, but the person next to me is seeing what I'm seeing, but seeing what they're seeing, you know, it's, but then, and then Peter Brook took this into account in his work. And um, I love this example you cited of, uh, what was it? I forget the play. Oh, the, the end of uh, the first oh. act of Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. Yeah. Would you, tell me the story. <laughs> well, it was one of, uh, of the most wonderful theatrical experiences I had. So empty stage, middle of the play, the lovers are crossed. They're running after each other. The fairies are throwing confetti in the air and making weird sounds. Um, at a certain point, Oberon swings on a rope down to center stage and spreads his arms. And it's just magic. It's just wonderful. And everyone's enthralled. And gradually the stage empties and it empties. And all this time, the house lights have been coming up. And they're still confetti on the stage. And only Puck is left. And he's sweeping the confetti. And he's sweeping the confetti. And the house lights are clearly up. And it's, it's time for the intermission. But everyone's just sitting there transfixed. And so Puck looks up from his sweeping. And he sees the audience. And he goes, 
go, <laughs> go, it's intermission. So let me ask you at that moment, is he an actor? Is he Puck? Is he Peter Brook? Is he Shakespeare? Um, I wonder who he believes himself to be at that moment. He's all powerful. Everyone in the audience follows his lead. <laughs> Get up and leave. He's like, God. <laughs> Which is fine as long as he doesn't think that he's a sage and really is God. <laughs> but what about us? We're all leaving. Well, Groucho has another song. Hello, I must be going. I'm sad to say <laughs> that's our life. Hello, I must be going. But on a ground level, the Surangama Sutra says there's no birth and no death. There's no suffering and no extinction of it. All these delusions are actually real. But they're real. They're not real in the way you think it is. So a mirage in the desert of an oasis looks real. And it is real as a mirage. But if you drink the last of your water from a canteen, thinking, oh, there's a mirage, there's an oasis there, and you get to the oasis and there's no oasis, you'll die of thirst. Mm -hmm. So real and real false dichotomy. What if nothing's real and nothing's unreal? <laughs> I refuse to, to try to answer that. <laughs> yeah, the typical I've only been a mirage once in my life. They slapped me. No, no. Once That's in my life, I was in, I was in Egypt once, and at a certain place, they got us off the bus, and they said, we want you to look at this. And we looked across the desert and everything. There was like this village, you know, way far beyond. And they said to everyone, that's a mirage. You're seeing a mirage. And I took a picture. And the mirage is in the picture. Wow. So Very is it a mirage or not? Very cool. It Very isn't. Cool. It isn't. I couldn't well, believe it. That's right. And, and that's real in, in the sense of that's what our experience is like. You remember we, we went hiking in Nepal. Yes. I just just to say, I, I've been studying uh, Qigong with Bob for about 10 years, and he's he's enabled me to do far more um, to be far more physically active than I thought I could be. <laughs> so but I'm in better shape than I was 10 years ago or 12 years ago. And I actually went to the the Himalayas way above my pay grade. But we did it. So and yes. Bob, Bob was my leader. Yes, and wow. you might remember that um, yes. all of the hikers would frequently ask the uh, Nepalese guides, oh, how far is it? I mean, I'm getting tired. How far is it? And they say, oh, not far now. Yeah. <laughs> and an hour would go by. And say, well, how far is it? And they go, oh, not far now. And anytime you ask a Nepali how far is it, they'll go, not far now, because they mean they're not thinking about time or distance. They're thinking if you're enjoying where you're going, step by step, it's not far ever. Um, We're always right here. 
And they were. <laughs> and they were. They were. They, they were they right were there with us. I learned so much from them. Step by step. Yep. I think that's I think that's a very useful mantra to carry ourselves uh, towards a conclusion. Um, and we've reached the point in the program where, where and uh, we didn't have other questions really, but I wanted to remind people that in the chat room is a link to um, where you can go if you want to buy the book at a little discount from the Commonwealth Bookshop. And I encourage all of you to buy it. It's a wonderful book. That is not your mind. Now we know what that is. Or and, no. Well, <laughs> it is. It is. Just it is. This. Okay. Right. <laughs> well, um, can, I, can I tell a quick anecdote before? Absolutely. And then, then, then that'll so, be perfect to carry I us. Was once um, I was meditating at a retreat. And I went to see my teacher and I passed a plum tree and the fruit on it was kind of green, but it was ripening. And I went into my teacher and I said, oh, I feel like that plum tree. I feel like, you know, I have some inkling, but I'm, I'm, I'm ripening, but I'm just not ripe. And my teacher looked at me and said, the difference between you and the plum is the plum doesn't worry about it. Oh, Okay. <laughs> don't worry about all this stuff that we just don't went through. Don't, don't worry about it. And don't believe your usual thoughts and feelings and whatnot are the way it really is. Okay. I think I'll stop there okay. <laughs> for today. And, and, and so I, I want to express on behalf of the Arts Forum and the Commonwealth Club, this is Ann Smith, the co-chair of the Arts Forum at the Commonwealth Club. And we're so grateful to Bob Rosenbaum, the author of That Is Dot Your Mind, for his very thoughtful and enlightening uh, presentation today. And I want to thank our virtual audience for being with us today. Let you, you can let friends and supporters know also they can listen to this program in a few days on the website recordings podcast selection of the um, Commonwealth Club's um, website. And so please let people know they can do that. It, it, it hears as well as it sees. So thank you so much, Bob. And we look forward to your next enlightened discussion. And I am uh, am delighted that you all joined us today. During this, this is the Commonwealth Club's 119th year of enlightened public discussion. Wonderful. And so this meeting is now adjourned. Thank you, Anne. Thank you all. Thank you all. Thank you all so much. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. 
Thank you for listening and for your support.